All right, you guys, Luke 21 this morning. As is our habit, our pattern, we will, uh, let's read through the chapter together, and then um, <clears throat> and then we'll pray, and then we'll kind of jump in here at the beginning of chapter 21 and, and walk through it. Um, we're going to talk about eschatology a little bit. Um, that is the study of end times things, as it's usually referred to. Um, <clears throat> but not only that. Sometimes there's a weird obsession with some of that stuff. So, Let's read, and then we'll pray. It's really the Lord that we want to hear, so... Okay, Luke 21, beginning in verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these, out of their abundance, have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the, the life, all the livelihood that she had. Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see? The days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And, and what will be, what will be um, or what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you uh, not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am or I am he, and the time has drawn near. <clears throat> Therefore, don't go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, don't be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines, and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven, but before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering, um, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as, a, as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you'll answer. For I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they'll put some of you to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. <laughs> so come follow Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but verse 18, not a hair of your head shall be lost by your patience. Possess your souls. But... When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun in the moon, and in the stars. And on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with with power and great glory. Now, When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh, draws near. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they're already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. (laughs) And that day, that day, come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. But at night, he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then, early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let's pray. Father, Father, good Father, it's you that we have needed every minute, every second, every millisecond of this last week, month, year, our our whole lives. It's, It's you, Lord. It's you that we need today. It is you that that we will require tomorrow and next week and however long we remain in these bodies, Lord. It's you. Father, I ask that you would help us not to supplant our attention with lesser things. Truly, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of our God endures forever. 
So let us resolve to be men and women of your word. It is in what you have spoken, how you have revealed yourself, that we come to know you in a very peculiar way. Not just your power, not just how you transcend all of this created order, but even more because of what you've spoken, we have come to know that you are not only transcendent, but eminent, Lord. You're here. You hear us. You speak to us. You work in our lives, in the lives of the whole world around us, Lord. You really, truly are the sovereign king. And the more we hear your word, the more we come to know and to trust you. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to trust you more. <laughs> Please. <laughs> we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, guys. All right, back up with me to uh, verse 1 of chapter 21 here. Um, there have been a few passages over the last couple of chapters here that dealt with uh, Jesus dealing with um, talking to the disciples about riches. Um, remember, the rich young ruler came to him, and Jesus would sort of end that situation saying, it's easier for a um, camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And the response of the disciples was, then who in the world can even be saved, right? Because their theology uh, was very um, <clears throat> uh, very much uh, prosperity-oriented, right? It was very much centered around, um, if you have lots, it's because you've been good and God has blessed you and blessing from God looks like riches, right? That's what they were taught. Of course, the people who have riches love to teach that. <laughs> they have all the power. Um, <clears throat> they love to teach that they're better than everyone else. And, and they did. So the disciples were confused. They were like, if, if it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus' response is, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can indeed save rich people. <clears throat> it's the only reason why any American can probably be saved. <laughs> Um, I think that a lot of what's happening in these passages is Jesus flipping their understanding about what, what's important in, in their lives and what really matters. Because so much of the world system is built around things that, to be frank, God hates. <clears throat> in fact, it was the Apostle John in one of his letters that said, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's all, all contrary to him. It's all against him. And it really is those motivations, the lusts of our bodies, the lusts of our eyes, and the pride of life that drive, um, drive all of the world's systems. All of the empires of the world, all of the nations of the world are driven by all of those things but not the kingdom of the heavens. The kingdom of the heavens is different. And Jesus, Jesus is writing what we have misunderstood, what they have misunderstood about God's way. So in chapter 21, verse 1, he sort of takes up this idea again of um, not so much castigating the rich as much as pointing out um, that riches aren't what you think they are. 
They weren't what they thought they were. And he looked up, <clears throat> verse 1 says, he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Very, very, very tiny amount of money. Maybe you and I could think of it, at least in, in our sense, as the smallest amount of money we have, is two pennies. <clears throat> so he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, some of the stuff I hear on TV, or like if you listen to Christian radio, you know, some of the stuff you hear about giving and about money and stuff, you're like, what are we doing? We're just trying to run businesses, I guess. We call them churches. But it's disheartening sometimes. This woman puts in these two pennies, and Jesus says that she put in more than all. Not just more than the rich person before her, more than every one. More than all of them. That is shocking because it's not the way that you and I think about finances. More is better. <laughs> right? <sighs> but... Um, the difference in the situation was uh, because of what those two pennies were to her. Not really what they were to everyone else, but what they were to her makes them more valuable than everything that everyone else gave because of what they were to her. Jesus points that out. Um, <clears throat> this poor widow is put in more than all, and here's why. Verse 4 says, For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. Um, but she, out of her poverty, put in all the life, all the livelihood, the, the life. It's all she had to her. All the livelihood that she had. There is in this um, offering of these two pennies from this poor widow, it seems a statement of dependence. Lord, I depend on you for everything. This is all I have to my name, and I'm, I'm offering it. So um, <clears throat> the value of these two pennies is greater because of what it, what it was to her. It was her life. Other people could have given millions, but to the Lord, the two pennies were more valuable because of the, the sacrifice involved, because of that, that position of trust, of a heart saying, Lord, I just trust you, that you'll take care of me. And, and that's hard because um, in the moment that you're going to die, you don't really need anything else, right? So you might, give, uh, you might give something away and the Lord doesn't replace it or doesn't give you more or whatever because you don't need more because you're going to die and it's fine. You know? But again, the way that we view death is also very different than... Um, obviously different than the way the Lord does too. So, She out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. So 
one of the things, uh, several things I want to mention to you. One is this. One is that I, I don't like looking at texts like this and people getting the impression that um, I or that anybody else wants them to give money to me or to this group or whatever, because I don't. Uh, you should do what God wants you to do. Um, but uh, one of the things that frustrates me is when we set rules around the idea of sharing and we say you've got to share you know x amount of dollars or this percentage of your income and and don't misunderstand me i I think that it's helpful to have some of those frameworks right because it gives us something to work with um but if, if we don't see that that what's happening here is the value of of sacrificial giving right of giving something that that really hurts to give I suppose in one sense, everything hurts to give when I share it with someone else because I could have it for me. Right? I could have more for me. So if I share anything with anyone else, there's some sacrifice involved. Uh, for some of us, though, more than others. Um, but whatever those standards are that we set for ourselves, as many uh, do set like a 10%, a tithe, which is what the word tithe means, means 10%. Uh, I do want to mention to you, there's no place in the New Testament where uh, anyone ever tithes to the church. It just doesn't exist anywhere in the in the New Testament writings. Um, the church is shared with each other. The people shared with each other. Um, the tithe in Israel was actually three separate tithes, so it ended up being 23 and a third percent. There was two tithes that were yearly and one that was every three years, which is three... Three, 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 three percent of your income, your yearly income, you know. <clears throat> but I also want to mention this. I think the general idea that of the New Testament is that we are, if we are following Jesus, we ought to be people who are willing to be generous. Um, but here's where I, I want. When you go out to eat and you leave a tip, be generous. <laughs> Give more than what's expected. Right? Set an example. Right? Think about the lives of the people around you. Think about your friends and your family. Look at your neighbors and say, "How? Where can I be generous here? How can I help? How can I serve?" Because if we if we constrain everything to saying we need to funnel something to our centralized church bank account, I think we we make giving and serving and loving our neighbor too easy. <laughs> and I don't want that. I want it to be right. I want it to be right. Not easy. <clears throat> her giving was obviously sacrificial. She gave her life livelihood hmm. so as I look at that it causes me to say Lord help me to, to reevaluate what I really value
Truly I say to you, Jesus says, that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. (laughs) You didn't really need me to explain that to you. (laughs) The real question is, do I believe him when he says that's valuable to him? That's the question. I found that to be true about much of the Bible. I didn't really need somebody to explain it as much as I needed to believe what it said. (laughs) Then, as some spoke of the temple, listen to what they're going to say about the temple. These two ideas are connected, by the way. The widow giving the last two mites, and then what's about to be said about the temple. Verse 5, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was, listen, adorned with what? Beautiful stones, and huh? And what? Donations? What's that in reference to? Remember this donation place this woman was giving to, right? These offerings to God? These two things are connected right here. They were talking about the splendor of Herod's temple. And and from the historical accounts that we have, there aren't a lot of them that that describe it, but there are a few. Uh, It was incredibly um, magnificent. Uh, the temple that had been rebuilt and then sort of uh, added onto by um, by Herod. He was trying to win the favor of the Jews, and so he added a lot. It took a long time, that uh, construction. Um, <clears throat> so they were looking at this, and they were talking about it. As some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. He had just told them. I mean, it's just fascinating. He just told them about this woman giving two pennies being more than all the donations. And then the next conversation is it, it, that Luke records for us is them talking about the temple and how it's beautiful and all these donations and how it had these beautiful stones and stuff. Like, okay, guys, like just right over their heads, you know, missing the point a little bit. So Jesus does something that's interesting, and I'm, he's just going to wreck our worlds, as, as he should. We just love the wrong things sometimes. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see... Look at the beautiful the, the temple covered in gold. The light hits it. It just shines out on the top of the, the temple mountain that had been flattened off there. So they could put the, the temple just magnificent, um, enormous, enormous structure. These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Come on, Jesus, you just need to think positive. See, one of the things I'd love to do is read my Bible and read the words of Jesus and then couple them with like motivational speakers' statements because they're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Again, I say, who am I really listening to? You know. These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. (laughs) They're like, isn't this amazing? Look at this this glorious building, this wonderful temple. And he's like, it's all coming down. (laughs) It's all going to (laughs) burn. Not in some vindictive way. 
to me, there's just so much realism here. He's just honest. Jesus had already told them and that generation that judgment was coming. They had rejected him. They attributed the ministry of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. They had said that it was done by the power of demons and so blasphemed the Spirit of God. Jesus said, all manner of sin will be forgiven you except the blasphemy against the Spirit. And that generation suffered great tribulation and eventually destruction. The city would be destroyed in that generation. It was 40 years later. We're talking about around AD 30 is around the time that Jesus' uh, public ministry was going on here. This is right the last week, so this is near the end of it. So it was around AD 30. Um, in AD 70, the Roman general Titus Vespasian went through the city of Jerusalem, through Israel itself, and destroyed, leveled much of it. The story goes that the leveling of the temple began sort of accidentally, but um, eventually all of the stones were pushed off of the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley, which is this little uh, valley off of the side of, of um, the Temple Mount. Exactly as Jesus said. And they're marveling at the splendor of this thing. And Jesus is like, it's gonna, not going to last forever. And if there's not something in that for us, I think there is, whether we say it's our own lives and the things we've accomplished. Look at what God has done in my life. Wonderful. But your body's temporary. It's failing. <laughs> the more you live, the more you realize that, right? <laughs> things start falling apart. No bueno. <sighs> What if it's true about our country? We say, the splendor of America. We've got to keep it going. This is just a temporary kingdom of men, guys. Temporary thing. These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, <clears throat> but when will these things be? And what sign will, be, will there be when these things are about to take place? Two questions are recorded here. Uh, similar ideas are recorded for us in uh, Matthew's Gospel. If you want to read Matthew 24 and 25, similar accounts there that Matthew includes for us. Um, <clears throat> Mark has some uh, similar parts of this as well in Mark 13. I commend those uh, sections to you for further study on your own. Um, before we get into this eschatology part, this sort of end times discussion, I want to preface it by saying that some of these things are hard. Um, and also... Let's be careful about trying to pigeonhole some particular thing about some particular event in the future, because uh, usually things aren't what we expect. <laughs> and I think if all we do is look at this text and we say, this just has to do with some time in the future, you're missing the whole point. I, I just I think that misses the whole point about about. What, what, why is he telling us this? Why was he telling them this is where we need to start? This is always the place where we start when we read our Bibles. 
Why is the author writing this? Why is the person who's saying it saying it to the people he's saying it to? What's the point? What would they have gotten from it? And then from that place, we then draw our application. Okay. Um, so he said, in response to their question, teacher, when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? He just told them the temple is going to be destroyed. And so they're like, huh? What? I mean, this is a, gl a glorious, magnificent structure, the glory of Israel in Jerusalem. He said, take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. Is it? It's not italicized on there. <clears throat> Uh, if you have your, uh, if you have a printed Bible, or if you have uh, some of the digital Bibles, do it. Mine has it here. One thing you'll notice about this phrase right here, "I am He," is that you'll notice that the word "He" is italicized. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, one of the things you'll read in the notes at the beginning it explains to you that part of the translation process is including um, some uh, words to help give a sense of what's being said. Okay, so they put those words in italics um, because they're not literally part of like the Greek or Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts. So the phrase is just, I am, which is of course also the way that uh, we have translated the name, right? Y-H-V-H, Y-H-W-H, however that ought to be pronounced, um, Jehovah or, or Yahweh. Um, the wording meaning I am what I am or I am that I am. God is refers to himself as the great I am, something that we sing in some of our songs. So it's interesting then that Jesus uses that same phrase. Some will come saying, I, I am. <laughs> Many will come in my name saying, I am. If you haven't heard it, it's been embraced not only by, well, I better watch what I say. <laughs> um, uh, this idea of the Christ consciousness or, or the universal Christ, that, that we all have the Christ in us, or you need to tap into the, the universal Christ consciousness. And, and it's not just God that, that is the I am, but you are the I am, and you can speak into existence just like he did. And essentially, it's just idolatry where you, you're elevating yourself uh, into godhood. Uh, it's very similar to uh, several other types of, of religious systems, even so-called Christian ones. Um, but but that uh, that idea is something that still is prevalent in some areas. That sort of mystical Christ consciousness as an idea, the Messiah is an idea about the reality of everything, and you can tap into that. Almost like uh, it seems almost like um, you know having a connection to the Force, you know, <laughs> and 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 you learn how to use the Force, you know, better or not, you know, young Padawans. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's almost sort of that idea. But the the biggest issue, obviously, is that uh, it's the same lie that was told in the garden: "You will be like God." Uh, no, you won't. <laughs> okay, no matter what you try, you won't. <laughs> you are created. He is the uncreated one, and there is no other. As we've said before. He alone is God who exists forever as Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one being called God. And he does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants, in whatever way he wants, frankly, because there's no one who can tell him otherwise. There's only him. There's just only, only one God. There's no one else like him. Everything else is something he created. Everything. And this idea sets the, the framework for what we call transcendency. God is so big. 
He's beyond what you can imagine. And he ought to be if he's God. Oh, but he's also he's also near. <laughs> Many will come in my name saying, I am or I am he. And the time is drawn near. Uh over the past, it's happened many years, right? But I, I remember several times over the past four or five years. You guys remember some of these guys? I think there are a few out west that were like, the rapture is going to happen this year. You remember there was one really prominent one that I read about several times, I think three years ago or so. Uh, or maybe it was, I think there was one right at the beginning of the pandemic stuff, you know. And so people, you know, they convince people to sell all their stuff and to give up their jobs and to... <sighs> do all of that. Jesus said this is going to happen. He just, just flat out said people are going to do this. Take heed that you not be deceived though. The problem with deception is that when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived, right? Otherwise, you're not deceived. You're just dumb. <laughs> you're just a fool if you believe something <laughs> and knowing that it's false. Uh, but the nature of deception is such that when you're deceived, you're not aware of the deception. And so his teaching here is to provide us with the awareness to say, uh, to realize that that there is the possibility of being deceived. So we need to watch out for that. Watch out for it. <clears throat> Many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is drawn near. And they do. Therefore, do not go after them. That's his instruction. If somebody comes and they're like, I am the Messiah, don't go after them. Okay? The time is drawn near. Don't follow him. <laughs> That's his, what he says. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. We're going to read this next section here where several different things are mentioned, uh, catastrophic things. And, and it, it's weird and frustrating to me that, and I grew up in this culture that really looked at all of these things, and, and like every time we talked about them, it was always like, look around you. There's more wars happening now, and there's more earthquakes, and there's more famines and pestilences and stuff. I'm like, okay. But since the time Jesus said this, that's always been true. And his, his warning here is that these things shouldn't trouble us. That's what he's getting at. He's saying, like, this is, this is normal life, guys. Like, this stuff's going to happen. <laughs> Nation will, uh, he, he continues, sorry. Um, then verse 10, he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Okay? There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Hey, when has this not been true? <laughs> it just, again, I think there's a lot of realism in what's being said here, and he's just saying, The world is troubled by all this stuff. But you don't have to be because our God knows. He's not, he's not afraid. He's not troubled like everyone else is. He's not running around, you know, wondering what to do next. Oh no, oh no, I, that earthquake happened. Oh no, there's a, oh no, coronavirus. Oh no, he, he, he's not, he's not like that. We are. He's not. (laughs) 
But, verse 12, before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Jesus, again, being uh, real with them. Keep in mind the immediacy of the context. He's speaking to Jews, some of which would be his followers, in the first century, before the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of Israel throughout the Roman Empire. And he's warning them about what's coming. Before all of that happens, indeed the Christians were this, the Christians were particularly persecuted in, in several different um, uh, places and times. Uh, at first, the Christians were considered part of, of the sect of Judaism by the Romans, and then eventually, because the Christians were rejected by the Jews, uh, they were then sort of classified separately from Judaism in the Roman Empire, and particular persecution was directed toward um, uh, Christians who wouldn't bow to Kaiser, who wouldn't bow to Caesar. Before all these things, they'll lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Oh, listen, guys, I know that you guys have been through some hard things in your lives. <laughs> we haven't done this yet. <laughs> and Jesus is like, this is what's coming, followers. This is what's coming. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying now. I'm not saying, oh, I realize now I sound like an alarmist. Oh, no, this is coming for you. And listen, I'm trying to keep it in its context. This is what Jesus is saying about them in the first century. There may or may not be some particular actual persecution that you or I might face as you follow Jesus. I obviously can't answer that to that reality right now. If you go to some other countries, there's certainly more present um, a reality to that type of direct persecution for being a follower of Jesus, right? But, but, but I mean, come on, somebody like getting mad at you because you stand for some Christian thing, like, what are they going to do? Not talk to you anymore? Like, oh, this huge persecution, you know? It just. <sighs> He tells them what to do, though, in that circumstance, when they are going to be murdered because they're telling people that Jesus has come back from the dead, because that's the, the focus of the, the gospel message in the early church was that Jesus died for their sins, was buried, and has been raised from the dead, and it got them persecuted hard. The Jews were like, you're out of your mind. Even when Paul went to Athens at Mars Hill, as soon as he mentioned the resurrection from the dead, all of them were like, out of here. <laughs> A few of them, you know, wanted to hear more, but most people were like, you, whatever. <laughs> Therefore, here's what they should do when they are brought before kings and rulers. It's an opportunity for testimony. Verse 14 says, Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you'll answer. <laughs> I think about the way that I, I'm, a, I'm a brooder. I, I just think about lots of stuff for long time periods, sometimes in an unhealthy way, honestly. And, and uh, so I'm like, what would I do? And then I started like planning, like, what am I going to say if I get arrested? I'm not going to get arrested. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus' instruction to them was not to worry about it. Settle it in your hearts not to meditate. Think about that. Jesus is saying, I want you to decide right now, to settle it right now in your hearts, that you're not going to spend a bunch of time thinking about this. 
Does that seem weird to you? You heard anybody ever say that to you? Settle this right now in your hearts. I talk to my kids sometimes. I'm like, I don't want you to do this again in the future. Can you, you know, can you, can you at least tell me that, that you, I know they're going to fail, right? I get, I get it. Um, like, can you decide right now? I tell them, this, I want you to decide right now that this is not right, that doing this is not good. <laughs> sometimes they're like, I don't know if I can decide that right now. I can decide right now. This is bad. <laughs> like, like this thing, is, this thing that we're dealing with is not right. <laughs> like, you can decide this right now, but I might do it again. You're right, but I want you to decide that it's wrong. You might do it again. That's true because we are, are slaves to sin. When we yield ourselves to sin, we understand that. Settle it in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you'll answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. I think of one of the times when Paul was speaking uh, to one of the leaders before he was shipped off to Rome. And uh, and he presents his case there. And this particular leader is like, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian, you know? And Paul's like, I I would to God that you would become altogether like as I am, except for these chains. <laughs> He's like, I want you to be a follower of Jesus, not in prison like I am, but like a follower of Jesus, you know? <laughs> you gotta love Paul, man. Like, this is the people enslaving him, and he's like, or, or imprisoning him, you know? And he's like, I want you to follow Jesus. I just want you to know him, you know? <clears throat> well... I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. The thing I want to point out to you is that one of the things, in a very simple, if we can break it down, very simple sense that Jesus is saying is that when you're in that moment, God will be in that moment with you, and he will be what you need in that very moment. I found that to be true in, in like those moments, as I've mentioned before, in the moment when like we, we're getting an ultrasound to find out the gender of our baby and they can't find a heartbeat. You're like... Again? Yeah, God is there in that room. Not again, Lord. <laughs> but he was there. And he, he meets us in that present place. And and what he's teaching those disciples then, he's teaching us now that he's present with you. And so you you needn't be afraid. You don't need to fear because God will be with you and he'll be there with you in that moment. So I know that right now you might think about those things like the what if question. What if this? What if that? How will I respond? But you don't have to figure that out now because God will be with you then. And I'm only I'm telling you that because I've I found it to be true. We play games in our head and we try and figure everything out beforehand, not knowing the reality of what's going to happen <clears throat> or what's not going to happen. <clears throat> he continues speaking to them and he says you will be uh, betrayed even by parents and brothers relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death <clears throat> we saw that happen in the early church and still it, it, it happens now you'll be hated by all for my name's sake like this is the message jesus like this is his like <laughs> come follow me i love when he's like follow me i want you to take up your cross deny yourself and follow me <laughs> 
I want you to count the cost and come follow me. Like sometimes I, I feel like we make this idea of being a Christian or following Jesus. We deceive people by telling them that, that when they decide to follow Jesus, everything's going to go their way and they're going to be happy or they're going to have, it's the same prosperity false gospel that they had believed even before Jesus came. The same thing that if you're doing what is right, then good things will happen to you. But that's not the reality. We live in a broken world and broken stuff's going to happen to you. But there is a God who redeems, who is present, and who, who, who is somehow able to bring beauty from ashes. But you don't know until you know. And he promises what's more, he promises beyond that, because the thing all of us are facing is that grave. We're all marching there. We're on the same airplane crashing. And we keep trying to say, we're going to reform it. The whole thing's crashing. You form it all you want. It's still going to crash into the ground. The whole plane. Whatever. You think capitalism is the problem. You think socialism is the problem. You think communism is the problem. You think whatever is the problem. The problem is us. It's humans. We are sinful and we've disobeyed God and we're crashing the plane. And Jesus comes along and he says, I'll rescue you. You can't do anything to save yourself. But if you'll trust me, I'll save you. why we say all to Jesus, all to him I owe. Indeed, many were betrayed, many still will be betrayed when they decide to follow Jesus. Some will be put to death, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. Did you, did you hear those? Like, this is the thing that sometimes we don't get. It's like, he's saying, they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. Like, we think those ideas are contradictory, but they're not. Because we think all that matters is our temporary lives right now, and we've made an idol of it. We have been preached at by the world around us that all that matters is being happy right now, and it's a lie. It's trying to make yourself king. And marriages and families and children and and communities have been spoiled because of it. Because we have bowed down to this false god of present peace. This last line, I remember the first time I read it, struck me so hard. This verse 19 here. Not a hair of your head shall be lost by your patience. Possess your souls. (laughs) Guys. Don't worry, we'll finish the rest real fast. It's fine. This is where I wanted to focus. (laughs) We'll just blaze through the rest. It's fine. (laughs) by your patience possess your souls (laughs) I remember growing up I grew up in the church and one of the things I used to hear as a kid was people say don't ever pray for patience because then bad stuff's going to happen to you what a weird way to view God as if he is spiteful well he's just trying to make things hard for us No. You have a good father. He's good. Oh, he is no tame lion. (laughs) He is not safe. (laughs) He is an all-consuming fire, but he is good.
the way the scriptures talk about this idea of, and I want to couple these ideas, these words together, patience and endurance. I want you to um, understand these two ideas linked together, patience and endurance. By your patience, possess your souls. Let me read to you. This is a passage that really uh, that I spoke from the week after our first. Um, sorry, the week after our first um, miscarriage. Romans five says, "Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus the Messiah, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand." And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Wait, wait, wait. We do what now? What kind of Christian life is this? See, because for years I've been told that we, we glory in, in being happy right now in this moment. But I think when you're a man who's been stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead when you've been beaten with rods on five separate occasions, when you have received 40 stripes minus one five times, just because you're going around telling people that Jesus has come back from the dead and he rescues sinners. I think that your attitude toward life is maybe a little different sometimes than ours can be. (laughs) Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing, here's why, knowing that tribulation produces Perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Tribulations produce perseverance, that ability to just stick through things to be patient, to endure, to persevere. All of these words and their ideas coupled together. By your patience, possess your souls. Same idea spoken of in the book of James. Tribulations produce patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There's some parts of the Bible I just wish weren't there. <laughs> but but here's what I want to... I, what if we could get our, our hearts away from this idea that all that matters is being happy or not hurting right now? It seems like over the past couple hundred years, this attitude of I need to relieve whatever present suffering I'm in immediately has become our God, the thing that we pursue. We have no deep theology of suffering, of suffering well and faithfully. Like many, I think, many of of our older brothers and sisters, by older I mean dead, <laughs> who endured things that you and I couldn't even imagine. Do I say this to condemn you? No, I say it to condemn me. 
<laughs> because I am weak. And I wonder if some of it isn't, I don't know, we won't go there, never mind. <laughs> I think that there are, are socioeconomic reasons for this mindset, and I think that there are scientific reasons for uh, why we have embraced this as the goal, so much so that one of the richest people in the world, his company is literally trying to cure death. I don't know if you've heard that yet. Like That sort of is the direction that Bezos is going. Um, <clears throat> I already know who did. Bezos is behind on this game. <laughs> I, somebody already did. <sighs> this is a lesson I've been trying to teach my kids. <laughs> By your patience, possess your souls. Because there aren't a whole lot of people telling them that. If you can just stick it out, if you can just wait, don't react. Don't allow yourself to be controlled by your emotions and overcome by them. Trust in God. And I know part of the difficulty is that we've also been told that that's not possible. But I say to you that Jesus says, by your patience, possess, own, own your soul. And all that that phrase means, if you weren't aware, the Greek word for soul is psyche. The word that's translated soul here, psyche, where we get our word psychology of the, the mind. There is, in fact, so much related to what we believe and what we think that affects our lives. Much of Christian discipleship is about learning to change what we believe to be true and conform it into what God has said is true. Real quickly, let's finish up. <laughs> quickly, quickly, quickly. Wait, did you guys hear that last thing? By your patience, possess your souls. Did you guys hear that? Okay, just making sure. Because if there's one thing that I want you to remember later tonight is I want that phrase to haunt you <laughs> when you're arguing with your spouse or when you're fighting with your kids again or <laughs> when you're wrestling about some work stuff tomorrow, I want it to haunt you <laughs> by your patience. Possess your souls, says the king of the universe, the sovereign Lord. And then I want you to go to him and say, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you, because that's really the whole point. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And people say, well, this is about some time in the future. <sighs> okay. If it is, then so be it. Does, does it matter? Does it, does it have any effect on you? Does it change anything? Nope. Uh, I think that obviously there's some immediate things here that absolutely apply to the people Jesus is talking to in the first century because Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies. They're going to be destroyed. And the end of this section here tells us about something called the times of the Gentiles. That's something that Paul later references in Romans chapter 11 um, because this is setting up a, a time frame that God is in control of, a time period here. 
When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. I think this is really practical advice. Anybody who believes the words of Jesus and hears this in the first century, when the Roman armies start to surround Jerusalem, they're going to be like, oh, we remember what Jesus said, and they're going to get out of there. And guess what? Many of the Christians did. But during that triumph of the Roman armies over Jerusalem, many Jews did not leave because they didn't believe Jesus. They stayed to try to hang on to the land and hang on to the city, and many perished. Many died because of that very thing. For verse 22, these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. You know why? Because pregnant people and nursing people are slow. I mean, it's really, it's just practical, like normal. You just, you've seen a, a lady about to give birth, like very pregnant. She's slow. <laughs> Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Uh, we, we have a, a newborn uh, now <laughs> again, and it is slow to leave our house. I mean, we have five kids, so like that's part of it too. But like, <laughs> it's slow to get anywhere. <laughs> you got to get like eighteen bags to go with you, and like make sure everybody has something, you know. <laughs> There will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. I think this is a very direct, particular statement about the nation of Israel. God was judging them in the first century because of their rejection of their Messiah. Don't misunderstand. God always has a remnant, and all the first Christians were what? Jews, right? And then God um, brought the kingdom to non-Jews, to the Gentiles, something that's referenced here, something that Paul was particularly persecuted about um, from the Jews, every time he mentioned, particularly when he was back in Jerusalem, when he gets arrested and he, he finally makes his appeal to go to Rome, the whole point uh, was that he said God sent him to announce the kingdom to the to the non-Jewish people, to the Gentiles, and the Jews in the temple were like, what? No, sir. And like they had this big riot because of it. They were so mad about Paul saying that. <clears throat> Anyways. Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. This is what we call the diaspora, the dispersion of Jews throughout all of the Roman Empire, which continued on for a long time. There are still Jews spread throughout all the world, um, um, but they didn't have a homeland until, um, I think, in May of 1948, because um, of the League of Nations after World War II uh, made this thing where they gave part of the land. Israel had to buy a lot of it, but anyways, won't get into all those details either. Um <clears throat> They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by non-Jews. That's what Gentiles means, by the nations, until what? The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This seems to be speaking of a very particular time period and event. I think that most of what is referenced right here in this section is something that happened in the first century uh, when Titus Vespasian came and destroyed Jerusalem, spread the Jews throughout the Roman Empire, and to this thing that that uh, Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And um, you'll see some references to some of those ideas actually in Daniel as well. Daniel 9, Daniel uh, 12 speak of some of those ideas. Uh, But um, Paul talks about it more in Romans chapter 11, where he says um, that uh, there will be a time when all Israel, all Israel will be saved. Um, But, 
um, he references this idea that uh, right now is this time of the Gentiles. And there is a time of fulfillment or of completion of that. What does that mean? What does that look like? I don't know. I don't have to know. That's God's thing. He didn't tell me to know. He just said, understand that. Something's going to happen in Jerusalem <laughs> until a particular time. Now we get into these other signs. There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And sometimes people say, well, why is this with that thing in about the destruction of of Jerusalem and the spreading of Israel, um, the the dispersion of, of Jews? Why are these things about the signs and the sun and the moon and the stars? One thing that you'll notice as you read the prophets of the Old Testament is that almost every time references are made to God's judgment or to uh, the day of the Lord is, is a phrase that's used uh, in several places to refer to time periods where God is particularly exercising judgment. Uh, one of the things that you'll frequently see are references to um, to um, uh, these sorts of like these sorts of signs, signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, things like that. Uh, we also see some of this in some of the stories from like the conquest of Israel. Remember Joshua telling the sun, sun stand still in the Valley of Ayalon. Do you remember that, uh, that uh, particular thing there? So um, certainly there are numerous references to this idea, um, to these sorts of ideas. Then you also have like, what was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? What exactly like literally was that? Fire and brimstone raining from the heavens. What is that? Looks like to people on earth, probably looks like stars falling, I would imagine, <laughs> right? Like if it's some sort of, uh, you know, uh, meteor event or whatever. I don't know. I'll let God sort all that stuff out. But um, this this type of language is frequently used in those sorts of passages. And we see it again. Uh, we see it numerous times in the book of Revelation as well. Um, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. <laughs> Wait. If Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the first century, then what is this thing about him? They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Did that happen? When? What would that look like? When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Um, I want to mention this to you briefly as we finish up here. Um, many prophetic passages have more than one fulfillment in more than one way. Some examples are um, how the prophets had said that uh, Elijah would come before the day of the Lord, before the coming of the day of the Lord. And Jesus looks back at John the Baptist and says, if you'll receive it, John is Elijah, who was to come. But then Jesus also says, Elijah is coming when he's asked about it. So there's like a future thing. But it's only one prophetic passage, but multiple places where it actually applies. Okay? Um, so... Seems like some of that is what is happening here. This is one of the things that makes prophecy 
difficult. And one of the reasons why I think it's unwise for us to try to pigeonhole particular events in the future and say this equals this. I just think that's uh, frequently unwise. We're very likely to be wrong. And then in the end, my question is a very practical one. What's the point? If we know that, why does it matter? What are we doing about it? If we actually think that's true. Um, <clears throat> so another reference or another idea to this is the prophecies about the Messiah. The Jews believed, some Jews taught that there would be uh, two separate messiahs because there were passages in the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah being a suffering servant who would suffer and die, right? Uh, reference Psalm 22, reference Isaiah 53, some of those passages. But then there are other passages like in Zechariah and in other places that talk about uh, the Messiah being a king who conquers the enemies of Israel. And so many of the Jews taught in the first century and at other times that there would be two separate messiahs, one who would suffer and one who would reign. Uh, they called um, one uh, Messiah ben uh, um, Joseph, the suffering servant, like Joseph from the book of Genesis, and Messiah ben David, uh, who they believed was the conquering uh, Messiah. But as Jesus came, he shows us that it's just him, <laughs> just two separate comings, two separate events, right? One time he came as the suffering servant, but he's promised from the moment he left and even before that he was coming again. When everything will be put under his feet to reign. This is the hope that we have, gang. So I don't want you to be freaked out by these passages that talk about signs and the sun and moon and stars. They're very common when we deal with prophetic passages and sometimes difficult to fully understand. Um, but the day is coming when he will return. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. <laughs> then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they're already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And I did want to talk about that a little bit more. But I want to reference to you Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 3, this idea that Peter talks about the elements, the very basic elementary things being melted with fervent heat. Uh, sometimes people, some people say, well, this idea of the new heavens and the new earth is really just a, a uh, um, reformation of the existing heavens and the earth. And frankly, I don't care. I feel like it's a distinction or a difference without a distinction or whatever. Um, <laughs> or a distinction without a difference, I mean. Um, if God destroys the elements with fervent heat and recreates everything, it doesn't matter what I think that means, <laughs> frankly. Uh, he's promised a new heaven and a new earth where there is only righteousness. Uh, that's the promise that he's made to us. But this heaven and earth will pass away. My words will by no means pass away. I want you to read your Bible. I, I, I want you to be people of the scriptures. I want to read the scriptures more and believe them. Take heed to yourselves, verse 34. Here's our last thing. This is Jesus' application. This is why he's telling them about these future events. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. One day he's coming back. Um, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. That's partying. 
um, drunkenness and cares of this life. That one just sucks. <laughs> that's there. <laughs> Do you, that's just like, he's like, don't let your heart be like um, weighed down with not just crazy stuff, but just cares of this life. Because it can. Just the normal, normal stuff of life. Just being busy stuff. The king is coming. That's what I don't want you to lose sight of. That's what he doesn't want us to lose sight of. And the cares of this life. And that, that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. (laughs) Sometimes people criticize certain parts of the church for saying, well, you just want to escape the bad things the Bible talks about in the end. I'm like, fine. Jesus said, pray that you might be able to escape. Like, what's the problem here? (laughs) In the daytime, He was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and he stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This was the normal thing during this last week. He's going to be crucified on Friday. He'll be arrested Thursday night, crucified Friday. And this is that final week. He's going to the temple every single day. He's teaching and then he's going back out of the city uh, to the Mount of Olives um, after that. So uh, he's preparing them for what's coming. Last thing I want to mention is that Peter... um, was criticized and he mentions it. He says that some people in his day, in the end of the first century, or or not even the end of the first century, but in the middle of the first century, were mocking the idea that Christians were saying Jesus was coming back because they said, it's been a long time and he hasn't come back yet. So um, I just wanted to remind you that Peter even got that criticism, so you shouldn't worry about it now. Um, People will still criticize us for that, but the uh, reality is that he is coming back, but time is different to him than to us. As Peter says, a day is as a thousand years to the Lord. A thousand years is like a day. Time's not like, it's not the same to him as to us. It's only been a couple days since Jesus left. (laughs) I know it feels like a long time, guys, but it's not. Okay? Don't lose heart. Learn to suffer well. By your patience, possess your souls. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for your love. You're so patient with us. I ask that you would have mercy on us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Guys, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. And the Lord lift up his smile on you and give you peace. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, you guys.